Section 5 The Symphony Since Beethoven by Felix Weingartner Translated by Maud Barrows Dutton This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. During the last ten years, many a time there has been mentioned the name of a powerful rival in connection with Brahms, a rival who arose in Brahms' second home city, Vienna, which seems destined to be the city of symphony writers. Anton Bruckner, although he was much older than Brahms, came into public recognition much later. His reputation was by no means general, but rather confined itself to a special party. What attracts us in this composer is his wealth of invention, the pregnancy of his themes, and the astonishing long-widdenedness of his melodies. He was a richly talented musician. One would almost be tempted to compare him to his great compatriot Schubert in this respect if he had only produced some work which kept on a uniform level of excellence so as to be truly called a masterpiece. This is not the case, for unfortunately his ability to utilize his inspirations, to bind them one to another, and so build up the composition organically did not keep pace with his inventive powers. I cannot share the opinion of his pupils and admirers that he was a great master of counterpoint. He may have been so as a teacher, but in his compositions, the purely technical part is often awkward, the polyphonic texture of the parts often doubtful and lacking in clearness, and the organic structure always interbroken. His wonderful themes are more like pearls strung on a string than organically connected. This is why Bruckner's power usually deserts him in the finales of his symphonies, which should contain the climax and cause the last movement to be inferior to the others, which is not favorable to his success. This also explains the breaking down, fragmentary manner of his compositions, a manner which does not admit of pure enjoyment. One is almost inclined to wish that he had fewer inspirations, but that the structure of his creations had been more logical, uniform, and carried out with a more definite aim in view. Often the noblest thoughts flutter away into an ineffective nothingness because they come into being but are not worked out. This is the more irritating since his themes resemble Wagner's dramatically symbolic motives. Could they but have been worked out psychologically by a masterly hand? Bruckner would have stood before us a shining light and led us on to make comparisons. Bruckner also lapsed into mannerisms, ending over an oft-repeated bass passage in imitation of the close of the first movement of the Ninth Symphony, certain peculiarly empty-sounding passages. His admirers call them passages soaring far from the world in his slower movements, thematic figures with the simultaneous sounding of these same figures in the counter-movement as if they had worn themselves out playing, and finally, those unbearable general pauses and breathing pauses, which for the most part gave the impression that he has lost his way, are mannerisms found in all of his works with which I am acquainted. What elicits our sympathy for Bruckner, both as man and artist, and also what had a great deal to do with his future reputation, was his large idealism, a characteristic altogether too rare in our day. Think of this schoolmaster and organist, risen from the poorest surroundings, 
and totally lacking in education, but steadfastly composing symphonies of dimensions hitherto unheard of, crowded with difficulties, and solecisms of all kinds, which were the horrors of conductors, performers, listeners, and critics, because they interfered sadly with their comfort. Think of him thus going unswervingly along his way toward the goal he had set himself, in the most absolute certainty of not being noticed, and of attaining nothing but failure, and then compare him with our fashionable composers, borne on by daily success and advertisement, who puzzle out their trifles with the utmost refinery, and then bow in homage to this man, great and pathetic in his naivety and his honesty. I confess that scarcely anything in the new symphonic music can weave itself about me with such wonderful magic as can a single theme or a few measures from Bruckner. I am thinking, for example, of the beginning of the Romantic Sympathy. To be sure, this magic diminishes in the course of the work, and vanishes more and more as one studies the piece, for great and beautiful sentiments continue to satisfy us only when they are presented in artistically perfect form. In the strife between the Brahms and Bruckner factions in Vienna, I was once asked my opinion of the two men. I replied that I wished that nature had given us one master in whom the characteristics of both composers were united, the monstrous imagination of Bruckner with the imminent possibilities of Brahms. That would have given once more a great artist. Here honorable mention must also be made of an artist quite worthy of celebration, who is related to Bruckner in his high idealism, and who, according to my opinion, stands higher as a writer of one-act operas than as a dramatic or symphonic composer. I refer to Alexander Ritter, the friend and nephew of Wagner. Of other German composers, I mention next that most prolific writer, Joachim Raff, whose principal works are his poetic symphony, Imvalda, and the romantic Leonora, Robert Volkman, who, in his B minor trio, above all others, has created a work of first rank, Felix Dressica, and Hermann Goetz, who died so young, and who, in fineness of feeling, was akin to the poet-musician, Peter Cornelius. It is incomprehensible to me how his delightful comic opera, The Taming of the Shrew, has vanished from the repertoires of the opera houses as completely as his F major symphony, which surely came from the quiet and sacred recesses of the heart, as its motto says, has disappeared from concert programs. What other people than the Germans would dare pride themselves of possessing among their stars of second magnitude a Hermann Goetz, and then afterwards seize those personalities tending most towards that superficiality which is brought in with some skill and claims from foreign countries and often neglect their own most worthy creations. Will it never be otherwise? Is the question so often asked, but seldom spoken out with complaint and threat. And this is the call to those summoned for the practical answering of this question. I must lastly refer to some important symphonies by foreign composers, which up to this time have not found their deserved recognition in Germany. And the example given here by me of directing them has been little followed. The latest of these works is the Symphony in D minor by the Danish composer Christian Sending, a piece born of the gloomy romanticism of the North, often harsh and rugged, 
but having a bold, powerful verb. The B minor symphony by the Russian composer Alexander Borodin is of a genuine national character, a masterpiece of its kind, and the most significant work of the new Russian school that I know. This piece is so pregnant and characteristic that I always feel as if one, merely from hearing this music, must get a picture of Russia and her people, even if one had never visited that land. As far as regards public recognition, the French composers, César Franck and Camille Saint-Saëns, have fared much better. The former has created in his D minor symphony a significant work. The latter has acquitted himself happily and successfully in the line of symphonies and symphonic poems. At a somewhat earlier date, Vincent de Indy, who was influenced by modern German art, produced some noteworthy things in France. The compositions of the young Russian Alexander Glozino offer much that is interesting. A talented maiden attempt in the symphony has become from the land of Joseph Suk. Karl Goldmart's Landlich Hochzeit, a country wedding, has found considerable circulation. These are not peasants that we see in the composition, but spoilt townfolk, who have conceived the idea of celebrating the wedding of a bridal pair of their acquaintance in the country. Often we perceive the perfume of the drawing-room in those sounds which are supposed to be pastoral. Aside from this, Goldmark's work is a brilliant, interesting piece of music worthy of performance and of universal applause. Let me also notice A. Rubinstein's honest endeavor to awaken the classical symphony to new life. Only once, however, in some of the movements of his ocean symphony has he succeeded in rising above the dull stringing together of musical phrases. With immense success, the symphonic pathétique of Peter Tchaikovsky has made its way through the concert halls of Germany during the last four years, calling attention also to the earlier works of this composer. It resembles an effective drama, rich in exciting and fascinating situations, and its effect upon the public never fails. It is said that Tchaikovsky himself feared that it never would be considered as a symphony. It is true that it departs from the usual form, both in the arrangement and the construction of the separate movements. In the first movement, the form may be traced, but the construction is free. The middle movements are quite concise, while the last is free again. Moreover, this comes from the adagio, which as a rule stands in the middle of a symphony, but the fundamental idea demanded a close, which should lose itself in gloomy darkness. It is said that the foreboding of death guided the composer's pen as he wrote this work. He therefore departed from the usual form for the sake of a poetical idea. It may serve for a definite purpose in the second part of this book to turn our attention to a consideration of the so-called modern school and writers of program music. End of section 5